And I just wanted to make a point that the Rambam is the hospital, oh. Technion is the university, and there's a good reason. We now have three Nobel Prize winners. We just wow. got one in chemistry this year. So the Technion will be very proud. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I knew the guy because when I was in the NIH, he came to NIST, which is the National Institute of Science and Technology, where he made the discovery. He discovered something um, and explain to me what it was and I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But the main thing is he got the Nobel Prize. So That's I just right. got the Nobel Prize because <laughs> I couldn't understand it. <laughs> okay. But but the two Nobel Prize winners we have, their work I do understand it's on ubiquitin nation yeah. <coughs> six years ago. <coughs> so um, going from the heights down to <laughs> the grassroots. Um, what I'm gonna do is obviously the title of the talk um, I need to tell you that I consult with a number of companies and this is very relevant to the talk today because even though what I'm going to say throughout the talk has nothing to do with any conflict that I may have, at the end, those of you who stay awake are going to ask me questions <laughs> and some of the questions are related to drug therapy and then you have to just remember, pinch of salt, anything I say because I do consult. Okay. So I'm going to show you some studies on epidemiology. For those of you who haven't been following the literature, the New York Times or any of these email blasts that come out that diabetics have more bladder cancer, more this, more that, I'm going to show you some of the epidemiologists to convince you that there may be a story here. And then, remembering that epidemiology, are there any epidemiologists here? Okay, epidemiology is soft data, meaning, <laughs> meaning it's a, they give you an association. You know, they tell you eat more carrots, you get less this, you eat, watch TV, you get more that. The point is there's an association. However, the studies actually are quite or relatively convincing because they use hundreds and thousands of people. Nurses' health study, the Chinese, the Europeans, and they come up with basically very similar answers. So there may be some truth in this at least from the association. The question that we have as biologists is, what's the mechanism? And so I'm gonna show you the animal models that we use to try and study the mechanism. All right. So here's a study from the New England. Certainly anything you say from the New England is supposed to be legitimate, right? But this is a, it's an interesting study because it's from the US and it looks at cancers associated with obesity, both risk and mortality. So it's not just an increased risk of developing the cancer, the increased mortality from the cancer. So it's cancer-related mortality. <coughs> not that you die with the cancer, but you die from the cancer. And you can see all your favorite cancers, or not favorite cancers, in both male and female. The one exception is prostate cancer. If you get prostate cancer and you're obese, you're more likely to die than if you have prostate cancer and you're not obese. So from that point of view, it fits in. The only difference with prostate cancer is that in obesity and type 2 diabetes, there's no increased risk of developing the cancer. And I often get asked, why is that? And I can only speculate that obese individuals have lower testosterone and maybe less chance of developing cancer. Once you get the cancer, the testosterone doesn't seem to be important. Something else is causing it to be more aggressive. And so mortality is increased in all of these. Uh, a study I'll show you in a moment <coughs> suggests that there's an association or correlation between serum insulin and C-peptide levels in cancer risk and mortality. And this is shown here, for example, with Pam Goodwin in, from Canada, 
where she shows that the worst uh, prognosis in breast cancer shown here is associated with the highest insulin levels. So the upper quartile of the insulin levels worse off than the lower quartiles in terms of mortality. Association, but suggesting something is connecting the two. And uh, prior to this, a lot of us had done studies in obese mice, high-fat diet, black six, obese mice, put in cancer cells, shown that the cancer grows more rapidly, and in certain cases, metastasizes. So there's a correlation both with the mouse work as well as with the association with the human studies. And this suggested to us that maybe insulin is the culprit. Of course, insulin in this case, <clears throat> you could say, but it's only reflecting the insulin resistance of the obese individuals. And I'll try and convince you that insulin is not just a reflection of the insulin resistance, but actually may be driving the cancer growth. And that's a myelogen. Okay, so. If you're obese, you have more risk of cancer and cancer mortality. What happens if you take away the obesity? Two studies, there's actually two and a half studies, but the two best studies are one, both in the New England, again, one from the States and one from Sweden. And I'm going to show you, for obvious reasons, the one from the States, because they are biased. This is from Utah, 10,000 gastric bypass surgeon, uh, patients. 10,000 patients treated by colleagues of MIMO, who were unsuccessfully treated. So they have very good controls as opposed to our surgical colleagues who made an impact on the obesity. What you'll see is if you look at the surgical group versus the control group, you'll see that there's a 50% reduction in the surgical group in terms of mortality, for, from all-cause mortality. Cardiovascular risk came down strongly, diabetes came down strongly, and of course, what wasn't commonly discussed <clears throat> was that cancer came down by two-thirds. So you could reduce risk and mortality if you remove the obesity, suggesting that the association really does exist. But again, we still don't know causality. And then finally, in terms of diabetes, 100 years ago, there's a guy called Maynard. One of the postdocs found this paper from 100 years ago where he found an increased risk of cancer and diabetes in general. And what he said, of underlined here, is if there's a common factor in the causation of the dual increase, dot, dot, dot. In other words, 100 years ago, we didn't know. And in about 45 minutes, you'll know the answer. <laughs> okay. So <coughs> studies on diabetes, you'll see increased risk of diabetes. And this is uh, relative risk, okay? And in some cases, like the liver in men, uh, mortality is increased more than twofold. And in female, in women, we've known for a long time that the uterus, endometrial cancers, increased in obesity, but it's also increased in diabetes. And most of these cancers are increased. It turns out that obesity can increase the risk of mortality from cancer, and type 2 diabetes can increase the risk of cancer. And of course, you'll say that most of our diabetics are obese, so how do we know that diabetes has anything to do with this? <clears throat> the answer is the epidemiologists have said if we remove the variables, such as the BMI, we still get an increased risk from type 2 diabetes. Obesity does it, type 2 diabetes does it, and when you put the two together, they sort of synergize or additive, and so these patients have an even higher risk of cancer and cancer mortality. Okay. All association. So the question now is what are the factors that are dealing with it. So if you look to the right-hand side, you'll see the obvious factors we think about in the metabolic syndrome. 
we think about insulin, we think about glucose, we think about lipids. And all three of these theoretically could drive cancer growth. On the left-hand side are things like IGF-1, which I worked on for more than 25 years. Um, I haven't given up on it, but um, there's also leptin. Remember that leptins increase in obese patients. And in cultured cells, leptin can drive cell culture growth of cancer cells if there's a leptin receptor. So maybe leptin's driving the same thing in obesity. Adiponectin seems to be protective, but of course we know that adiponectin's down in obesity of type 2, so loss of protection may play a role. And then inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, obviously very important. What I thought of doing at the stage was isolating each of these factors alone. Because in any patient or animal with obesity, you're going to have all these things gone wrong, and type 2 diabetes, many of them. <clears throat> but how do we know which one's really driving primarily? <clears throat> Not entirely by itself, but at least as a single factor. So we use an animal model I'll show you in a moment, and I'm going to try and convince you that insulin can be driving cancer growth, and it may actually be doing it through the insulin receptor. Okay. Uh, we have an animal model, and we're now looking at hyperlipidemia. We're also showing cancer, excessive cancer growth and metastases. I'm not going to show you that today. And of course, I don't know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, Warburg showed that glucose is important for cancer cell growth, so we can't exclude that as a possibility. The question is, how do you look at each of these separately? <coughs> so to do that, I'm going to show you a model of type 2 diabetes, which I presented you a few years ago, and I still remember that Rudy Leibel said to me, you have to do the following study. It took me three years to do that study, but we basically got it published. I don't know if you remember the study you suggested. We had shown that leptin affected this model, and you said, but you've got to give it in the brain and see what remember? Okay. We did that eventually with Gary Schwartz. Eventually, three years later, we got it published. You were right, but you were partially. You didn't know the whole answer at the time, but thank you for the suggestion. Anyway, it's the same model I'm going to show you today, so you can take a break for the moment. <laughs> and I really need to tell everybody in this audience that diabetes is a dual defect disease. You may not know it. There are genes involved in it. There's pressure from the environment, right? Teaching you something new, okay? And... Like most patients with obesity, most not all, have insulin resistance, type 2s have the same, but the type 2 patients develop diabetes when their beta cell becomes dysfunctional. They can't keep up overcoming the insulin resistance, and that's probably genetic as well, almost certainly. And they go through a phase of prediabetes or impaired glucose tolerance, and then they become diabetic. Okay. I know this is all new to you, but anyway. The reason I show you this is because I want to show you the model that we created, and um, this is the model. And it sort of has a similarity to what I just showed you. So instead of making the mice obese to make them diabetic, we made the mice through a transgenic means. We engineered a receptor, actually we did the IGF receptor, it was a dominant negative receptor, engineered into the muscle through a muscle-specific creatine kinase promoter, overexpressed it in the skeletal muscle with a little bit in the heart because it also leaks into the heart as well, and the mice were born with severe muscle insulin resistance because that's the only defect they were born with, engineered genetically. 
About two weeks later, we found that the mice then had, two weeks later, they then had fat resistance to insulin. So it had moved from muscle to fat to liver. And also at this stage, at about four weeks, we did clamps at the time with Jerry Shulman. We showed that insulin couldn't suppress fat post production. So it jumped from muscle to fat, liver at this stage. Beta cell was compensating because they had hyperinsulinemia and their blood sugars were normal. Their fasting sugars were normal. So they had what we would call prediabetes, with paired glucose tolerance. And then about two weeks later, they developed beta cell decompensation where they lost first phase insulin release. And then they became diabetic. They're not obese. Yes, if you try and sell this as a type 2 diabetes model, everybody says, especially those involved in metabolism, say, not a good model. doesn't have obesity. And the reason it doesn't have obesity is because it was engineered genetically. So that's the negative spin, as they say in Washington. And the positive spin is that they're not obese. So we could now use this model to look at the diabetic parameters without, in the absence of obesity. And we could use it specifically for this cancer program. Okay. Let me just show you. There we are. So these are the controls with their instance from two weeks to eight weeks, but you could look at 24 weeks, six months, and more. You'll see the hyperinsulinemia right from the beginning in uh, purple, the MKR mice. And if you look at their blood sugars, as I said, their fasting is normal at the first few weeks, and then at six to eight to ten weeks, their blood sugars are four times normal. So if 150 is normal for a mouse, five, 600 is easily what they have. And they're quite sturdy mice. They're FEBN, and they just keep going forever with the hyperinsulinemia and the dysfunction of the beta cell. When we cure the diabetes, like with leptin, the first phase comes back. Everything gets better. <clears throat> so we think it may be the first phase that is loss is tipping them into the uh, diabetic range. If you do a glucose tolerance early on, you'll see normal fasting at three weeks with impaired glucose tolerance at this stage. And then at eight weeks, you'll see the di diabetic. Fasting is instead of 150, it's 200 and something, and after the glucose, it's very high. So it's like a pre-diabetes into a diabetes model. But what I showed you were the male mice, and what we're going to use are the female mice. The male mice have high glucose, high insulin, high lipids, non-obese. The female mice have everything that's important here, hyperinsulinemia, with normal blood sugars and normal lipids. When I say normal, they're really borderline, and as soon as you stress them, of course, they tip into diabetes. But in the fasting or regular state, they really only have the hyperinsulinemia. <clears throat> so here's the theory. <coughs> Sorry, I have a sinus. Nemo travels a lot and doesn't get sinus attacks. I travel a lot and I get sinus attacks. I just come from Mount Sinai to Colombia and I get a sinus attack. <laughs> <laughs> air quality. Sorry? Air quality. It's better than the Okay. So, the mice have insulin resistance, they have hyperinsulinemia, and we've shown previously and published that there's an interaction with insulin on the mammary gland. But the idea is the hyperinsulinemia working on the mammary gland affecting, we believe, the insulin receptor, and I won't go into detail why, but I'll show you some uh, schematics about it, could be interacting with the IGF receptor, because, of course, hyperinsulinemia could over, cross over and interact with the IGF receptor. 
And that's forming a basis for when you add the tumors and cancer, you get excessive cancer growth. That's what I want to show you. So to do so, I have to tell you one story that is, I know a lot of you know, but not everybody knows. That these two receptors form a family of receptors, the IGF receptor and the insulin receptor. The colored part down here, thanks to my postdocs who do these slides for me, uh, this is the tyrosine kinase. So it's the <coughs> catalytic subunit, it's the active site of the receptors, and they are very similar. So that's why it's a family of receptors. It's different from all other ki kinase receptors. They form a subfamily of the receptors. And as you know, IGF-1, insulin growth factor, is a growth factor. So when the IGFs 1 and 2 bind to it, you get growth, development, cell survival, etc. Okay. The insulin receptor, on the other hand, is interesting because there are two subtypes. There's IRA and IRB. When insulin binds IR B, you get your metabolic effects. You find IRB on muscle, liver, fat, etc., just where you'd expect metabolic function of insulin. There's a subtype called IRA, which is a much more of a mitogenic receptor. And insulin can actually stimulate this mitogenic receptor. And then you get <coughs> hybrids between the two, which are not really that important, I believe, although others believe it is important. But anyway, so I want you to focus for the moment on IRA and IRB. IRA, which is the splice variant, you'll see the exon 11 is spliced out here, IRA, binds insulin and binds IGF-2 extremely well. doesn't bind IGF-1. It's found in the fetus and it's thought to be fetal growth and development and maybe the insulin receptor that Arge discovered as being a factor. Could be the, the receptor that is important in gestational diabetes when you get children get the glucose, or the fetus gets the glucose, produces the insulin, hyperinsulinemia in the fetus. Through this receptor, you can get macrosomia. Okay? But it's also found on cancer cells. And it's mostly mitogenic, much less metabolic. Certainly, this one is only metabolic. So we believe that the IRA, certainly breast cancer, and the mammary gland may be playing a role. When we looked at our mammary glands, now you, it's very hard to measure, well, it's impossible to measure at the moment IRA and IRB at the protein level because there's no antibody. Every time we try to make an antibody, we fail, and you can see that it's buried inside the, the structure of the, the molecule. So it's been hard. So we can only do PCR, quantitative PCR. When we look at the mammary gland, in our hyperinsulinic female mice, we have many more protein, receptor protein, that's IR. When we do the PCR, we get 50-50. So at least half of this increased insulin receptor expression in our mammary gland, at least 50% is probably IRA. When we look at our tumors that we use, they also have IRA. So we think it's anything we show, I show you is going to probably be through IRA. And I say thank you, I think, I'll show you that, and I think because we don't have proof yet. <coughs> so in fact, the theory would be that the insulin could be working through IR, IRA, and or IGF-1 receptor, or both. We don't know. All right, so the first tumor I'm going to show you basically is the polyomavirus middle T antigen. It's an oncogene. It's powerful. When you express it in any cell or any tissue, you get 100% tumors. It's really powerful. 
And so we expressed it in the memory epithelial cells through the MMTV promoter, mouse memory tumor virus promoter, driving polyomavirus. And so we would get 100% of tumors. We're going to use the female mice because we did it in the memory gland and it's uh, breast cancer, of course. What I want to show you, the polyomavirus by itself is a transmembrane domain with no catalytic subunits. But it can be driven to be an oncogene by phosphorylation of tyrosines and serines, which then attract IRS molecules, uh, uh, PLC, SARC, all sorts of molecules that are very familiar to us with the insulin IGF signaling pathways. We also showed in cell culture uh, that when you stimulate the insulin or IGF receptors, the two co-immune precipitate, more so than in the absence of the ligand. So you can actively bring the receptors together, co-immune precipitate them, show more phosphorylation of the polyomavirus, more binding of these substrates, and in fact, while it's an oncogene through other receptors, in our cells we can actually show that insulin can actually stimulate it even further and enhance the uh, oncogenic process in cell culture. To show it in vivo, we crossed the mice that make the polyomavirus in the mammary gland and make mammary tumors with our hyperinsulinemic female mice. And so we had the biogenic to see whether insulin would affect the oncogenic process in vivo. You can see that here. This is an early tumor. It's a mixture of hyperplasia and early tumor formation. At six weeks of age, the mice already have this development. This is the uh, uh, <coughs> whole mount of the mammary gland. These are the lateral branching, terminal embuds. This is the uh, lymph node. But you can see how much more aggressive it is on the right-hand side in the face of hyperinsulinemia. You can see the primary focus, and then it's spreading throughout the mammary gland. And in fact, if you wait four or five weeks, these tumors develop and even infiltrate the chest wall much more aggressive in the face of hyperinsulinemia. Now, you can imagine that you wean the mice at three weeks, at six weeks they already have tumors. In fact, if you look at three to four weeks, you'll find these early tumor developing. So it's a very fast, early tumor development, and it make, it's a problem because, let's say you want to inject a compound, as I'll show you, to inhibit the receptor, inhibit the, uh, the hyperinsulinemia, you don't have time to do that. So what you want to do is you want to be able to time the development of your tumors, delay the onset, give it in adults instead of in uh, pre-adults, pre-puberty, um, put in less, uh, you know, smaller tumors, a slower process. That way you can manipulate. So to get the window of opportunity, we take the cells that have the polyomavirus, inject them into the mammary gland of the normal and the hyperinsulinic mice, and you'll see here, this is the hyperinsulinemia. On the right-hand side is the open bar with the marked increase in, in insulin. And you'll see that the tumors grow at a much faster rate. This is the volume in the face of hyperinsulinemia compared to, in the closed circle, the ones that are in the absence of hyperinsulinemia. So there's a marked increase in insulin stimulation of the tumor growth, what we think is the insulin. And this allows us, over this period, to start injecting things and manipulating the growth. <clears throat> this just shows you BRDU, so that in the, these are the vehicle, and these are the, uh, this is the hyperinsulinemic mice, and this is BRDU uh, in green, uh, and you can see much more proliferation. 
just to correlate with the tumor growth. Okay, so back to our theory. Insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, changing the mammary gland, making it more receptive to the tumor, and the insulin driving the tumor growth, tumor progression. And we assume it's through the IR receptor, but it could be through the IGF-1 receptor. So if that's true, we should be able to block the receptor or receptors and block the, the effect that I just showed you on the volume. So we took a compound from Bristol-Myers-Squirt, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, a small molecule given to the mice. It blocks the tyrosine kinase of both receptors because you can't distinguish them easily with a kinase inhibitor. What you'll notice is that the hyperinsulinemia went from high to enormously high obvious reasons. We give a kinase inhibitor, it's going to block the insulin receptors everywhere, and if they're partially blocked, they're going to be totally blocked. So the hyperinsulinemia gets even worse, but despite that, you reduce that added effect from this one to here, the added effect of what we think is insulin. So some, by blocking the receptor, we're blocking this effect. And the growth of the tumors now is back to what you'd expect in the absence of the hyperinsulinemia. Right? <coughs> We should be able to bring down the insulin and show the same function. So what we did is we used a compound CL with numbers. I don't have it here. I can never remember the numbers. But it's a beta-3 adrenergic agonist, which... It's way lower. Oh, there we are. So, you, me, I'll read it for you. Memorize. <laughs> That's right. The post quiz. Okay. But what you'll notice is that when you use this compound, you bring down, uh, and we've done this on metabolic studies in the males and now in the females, and you'll see it brings down the insulin from this level down by 75%. You'll see tumor weight, at the, tumor weight at the end of the experiment came down by 50%. You'll see the volume here, which is exaggerated and is brought down to the regular tumor size um, by reducing the hyperinsulinemia. And you can see that again with the polyomavirus. He has the exaggerated polyomavirus causing tumor infiltration with the hyperinsulinemia, and that's in the face of bringing down the insulin. You get it straight back down to the normal size in the absence of the hyperinsulinemia. So the receptor and the hyperinsulinemia were blocked, and we got the tumors to come down, suggesting in, in our mind that this is a direct causal effect. All right. The patients die from cancer metastases, seldom die from the primary tumor. So we decided, well, the next step is to look at metastases. What I've shown you till now is published. You've never read it, so for you it's all new. This is unpublished, hopefully you're accepted in the near future. And this is to look at metastases. Polyomavirus that I showed you, the biogenic, will metastasize if you wait long enough. And I don't know, but I have postdocs and students who don't have time to wait six to nine months to see their first metastases. So they say, do something, we can see metastases within two to three months, so we can uh, publish. All right. So there is a tumor um, that is developed from the semic VEGF oncogene called um, MVT1 cells that develop the same mammary tumors, but they metastasize much faster. And you can do the same studies by injecting the cells, getting the primary tumors, getting the metastases. <clears throat> so we injected tumor cells in, whoops, tumor cells into wild-type MKL mice. 
We developed the tumors, and I'll tell you now, and I'll show you in the next slide, that in fact, the tumors are larger in the hyperinsulinemic mice. And I'll show you that they're more metastases. However, everybody will ask the question, but maybe the larger tumors are driving more metastases because they're seeding more cells. So the way to overcome that, uh, we did two experiments. One was you remove the primary tumors at the same size, different age of the tumor, but they're the same size. You don't let the, the tumors develop to a larger degree in the hyperinstemic mice, and then you look for metastases. Alternatively, you can inject them intravenously. And then you don't have any primary tumors, you just have the seeding to the lung. And then you can see whether the hyperinsulinemia is doing something to the cells of the lung and giving you more metastases. So in this experiment, we introduced the luciferase, the firefly luciferase gene, so we could do in vivo monitoring of the tumor developed and the metastases. In the top row, the control mice over seven weeks. The bottom row are the MKR, the hyperinsulinemic mice over seven weeks. And I think you can see here circled, there are more metastases developing in more mice in the hyperinsulinemic mice, and the tumors are much stronger. You can see that here, if you look at the flux, you can see these are the hyperinsulinemic mice in the gray bars, and in the black bars are the control mice. You see the volumes over here, I promised you that the tumor volume would be greater in these uh, MBT cells, semic vegetal oncogene because of the hyperinsulinemia, and you can see the tumor weight at the end was double as well. Okay, so that was regular. And then you can look at metastases. You'll see that you do get metastases in the control mice, but you get many more metastases in the MKR mice. And to convince you, of course, we do the quantification of 20, 30 mice, and we show the increased metastases. I don't have um, a slide to show you. We've done one experiment, uh, repeated a few times, which is in in this preparation of the publication where we've given the CL compound, reduced the hyperinsulinemia, injected the cells intravenously, giving the order back to front, but basically we had an inhibition of the metastases. So it looks like the hyperinsulinemia is driving it. We haven't yet done the other experiment which is giving the tyrosine kinase inhibitor to see if the metastases will decrease. That's one study of metastases, and I have one more to show you. <coughs> and I'm using my New York accent so I can get through a lot of data from the Upper East Side. Um, so this was just the summary of the results I showed you, um, that the increased metastases didn't depend on small or larger tumors, so we think hyperinsulinemia is the function. So, so can I ask a question? Of course. <coughs> So supposedly, when you give the CL compound and you lower uh, hyperinsulinemia, you will um, increase glycemia or don't you? If you the CL compound? Yeah. yeah. So that's a terrible question. Okay. <laughs> Just remember, you never say that to somebody who asks a question. Right. It's a terrible question because you've got me. <laughs> the CL compound improves the insulin resistance. Uh -huh and then improves the hyperinsulinemia. So it's not a pure insulin-reducing <coughs> agent. The insulin resistance gets better. That's why the male mice, their metabolic the function is better. Okay. So you could say to me, well, maybe the inflammatory cytokines got better because the insulin resistance got better. <coughs> I would say, yes, maybe. You got me. We did measure uh, TNF-alpha, 6 and a few others. They're not abnormal in our mice, surprisingly. 
And so they didn't get any better. So I, but I can't exclude yeah. them. See, but what happens with the glycemia? The glycemia stays. The glycemia stays. in the female mice was never high. And it doesn't get higher. In the male mice, it goes down because you've improved the insulin resistance. Okay. Right. So the high so glycemia. That's out of the equation. Exactly. Okay. So it's a terrible question. <laughs> Another question which may really be terrible. Okay. They're not terrible questions, they're terrible answers. Yeah. Um, what about if you treat with metformin? Can we come to that in a moment? Because I'm going to show some metformin data. <clears throat> we, have, we have issues with uh, certain drugs in these mice. Some work, some don't work. Uh, and I'll, I'll bring that up when we... Keep, keep it in mind, I'll talk about metformin at the end. Because it's, it's a very interesting issue. All right, so <clears throat> we, had a, we have another experiment ongoing. And I'm showing this because I think it's actually quite interesting. And I only sort of got the answer yesterday when we went to meet with a colleague at UMDNJ, Terry Wood, who works on this stuff and collaborates with us and actually came up with... The an I think the answer to what's happened. Okay, anyway. So we're also using the RTTA new oncogene. So it's the new oncogene, uh, and we've used cell lines with oncogene new because it's very similar to the human breast cancer story. This one's inducible with doxycycline. You get primary tumors, like the others, and you get metastases. Here you have to wait three months to get the metastases, but that's still within the, the limit of what the postdocs will allow. So when we did these experiments, we induced the tumor with the doxycycline. The tumors developed in about four weeks. You wait a couple of months and you get the metastases. We found that they had the same size tumors in the hyperinsulinemic mice. Primary tumors were the same. A little bit of a shock to us. Fortunately, they had increased metastases. So that sort of fit the picture, plus minus. But the question is, how can you get more metastases if you've got the same size primary tumor? So Terry's idea was maybe the tumors are more aggressive. So we said, okay, how do we measure aggression in tumors? And we had been measuring EMT, epithelial mesenchymal transition. Don't ask me what it means. I just know it's a good term for more aggressive tumors. In other words, as the cells become less differentiated, they convert to mesenchymal, they can then spread, they can grow, they can metastasize. So they can become more aggressive. We're doing the same cells, uh, the same studies with stem cells to look at how the hyperinsulinemia affects cancer stem cells, and I have no data on that yet. Because in fact, you guys just stole my collaborator, uh, who does the flow, who's been helping me with this, but hopefully I'll continue to collaborate with him. So I'll just show you one slide, two slides. This would be the normal mice, and you can see how we're staining. There's DAPI stain, there's ECADHERIN. So ECADHERIN, <coughs> when it's on the surface, that move or inner cytoplasm move to the nucleus, that's a suggestion that EMT is occurring. N-cadherin uh, then will take over. We're just staying for N-cadherin. But one of the things that we noticed and she pointed out yesterday is that suddenly CK5, which in the normal mice, the, nor the tumors from the normal mice, is just covering the whole slide, suddenly it's sort of disappearing or it's much less in these... Um, hyperinsulinemic tumors. So I'm just showing you the picture. I'm not sure I'm showing you the, the good controls, etc. But basically, EMT seems to explain to us, we, the data looks good, the EMT seems to suggest that you can have same size primary tumors, but the aggression of the tumor is more so in the hyperinsulinemia. And that's maybe why you see the same size tumor, but you see the metastases. So that's very new uh, for me as well. Okay. So, 
we believe that the insulin's working through the IRA. Could work through IRB as well because you need cells to be <coughs> metabolically active. Um, it could work through the IGF-1 receptor. We haven't excluded that yet, although we have studies ongoing. But interestingly, all at the same time, between the epidemiology, the animal studies, there are studies from humans, mostly from the Italians, <coughs> who have shown that if you take breast cancer samples from women and you measure the insulin receptor, there are more insulin receptors, the worse the prognosis. When they look at IRA using the same PCR technique, there's more IRA than IOB. And they can also, in some other studies, they've actually looked at phosphorylation of the receptor. Looks like it's enhanced. So active, more receptors, more activated, and perhaps more IRA, worse prognosis. So here's just one study showing from a different group. This is a moderate level of IR expression, insulin receptor expression. This is a high level of insulin receptor expression, and you have a worse prognosis. If you tie that in with the hyperinsulinemia that Pam Goodwin showed us, related to poor prognosis, maybe there is a story that insulin's driving insulin receptor, uh, and I think we in the animal model have shown something very similar. Okay, so strong conclusion. I think, many people think that obesity type 2 diabetes increased risk of cancer, cancer mortality, cancer associated mortality, and an important factor may be endogenous insulin, the hyperinsulinemia, not just a marker for insulin resistance, but also capable of driving certain tumors. About two years ago, four papers came out in Diabetologia, which suggested that a certain analog insulin, glargine lantus insulin, just remember I consult with Sanofi, so a certain insulin uh, may be causing more cancer and cancer mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. Registry studies, um, no control to them. Um, all the epidemiologists, although some statisticians must have been involved in this, all the statisticians, the epidemiologists who came afterwards said they poo-pooed this. They basically said this is it's bad titles, it's bad studies, it's registry, etc., etc. So if you ask me, if you then look at what happened with the advisory boards, the FDA, the ADA, the Europeans, they all said, hold off, this is registry study. A number of studies have come out to try and confirm or deny this. There's only one study that, well, all the studies are interesting. Again, registry studies, there's a study from Canada that suggests if you use glargine insulin for more than five years, maybe this is an effect. If you use larger doses than 50 units, maybe there's an effect of this. And then there's studies that have basically said this is all wrong. And I've shown just the opposite. There was a study recently that said that NPH is worse than glargine insulin in a particular study. So who knows what to believe? <coughs> Bottom line is we have to wait and see. But that's the negative story. The positive story is the story of metformin. It's been shown by a number of epidemiological studies now, and many of these predate uh, a lot of the analog stories, etc., because they um, epidemiological studies that look back 20 years or look forward 20 years what they've shown is that patients, type 2, treated on metformin, do better in terms of cancer prevention and mortality than if they're not on metformin. The studies don't say that insulin or sulfonylureas are bad for you, but they say better for you is if you're on metformin. And 
there are two schools of thought. The one school of thought says, well, informin improves metabolism, there's hyperinsulinemia, so you, you know, you, you, you're protecting from the hyperinsulinemia. The other school that's worked quite hard are the groups that are looking at how metformin can work, and here you'll see that metformin activates AMP kinase, which inhibits mTOR. And mTOR is an important final common pathway to PI3 kinase and can drive protein synthesis, cell proliferation, etc. So this could be a direct effect. And in fact, they've taken cell cultures, thrown in metformin, and shown you can show exactly that. You can block mTOR, you can block growth of the tumors. And mTOR, for those of you who don't remember, is where rapamycin uh, blocks and rapamycin is actually used in some cancer therapies today. And we've actually used rapamycin in our mice and showed that indeed it blocks cancer growth. So back to your question. Uh, this just shows you that mTOR with sulfonylureas and insulin, you have a better prognosis. Otherwise shown here, better prognosis if you're on mTOR as opposed to no M uh, metformin. Sorry, you have no metformin. So metformin seems to be important. And in fact, there are now listed here seven trials in the US, Canada, and one in Korea, looking primarily at breast cancer with a few other cancers to see if metformin as single therapy, <coughs> as adjunct therapy, or neoadjunct therapy can actually affect the outcome of the patients with breast cancer, early, late, metastatic, etc. So people that are actively interested in whether metformin may be valuable in patients with breast cancer. And then of course, if this shows, some, if this is true, it'll, it'll be used in other cancers as well, or be tested in other cancers as well. To answer your question, when we gave metformin to our mice, the, um, their metabolic status did not improve. When we gave TZDs to our mice, their metabolic status did not improve. And we studied them and published them. We have a lot of theories as to why they didn't work. Uh, I won't get into details, but the mice are not typical diabetic in that respect. They don't respond to them. They do respond to leptin. They do respond to uh, fibrates. They do respond to CL compound. And the reason they respond to those three, we believe, and what we showed is that fatty acid oxidation is increased. So that you remove the triglyceride and other bad things that are stored in muscle, liver, <coughs> pancreas, etc., and that's why they improve. And maybe that's that's the driving feature, and that's why the metformin, TZDs, etc., don't help. <coughs> so did we try metformin in our mice with cancer? Yes. Because even though it may not affect metabolism, maybe it could affect the tumors. And we have two out of three experiments that worked. One didn't work, so we're not 100% sure. Uh, we'd like it to work more consistently. Okay, so that's my that third last slide. Um, I spoke to you about this before. We've looked at one factor. We're now looking at lipids. We're not suggesting in any way that it works in isolation, but it could be a major driving factor. And as you pick up each of these factors, it could enable you to think, now I'm speaking like I'm running a grant, could you enable you to think on uh, therapeutic options. What can we do specifically, like reformant, we block the insulin receptor, for example. Uh, can you look for therapeutic options that way, rather than just having an overall metabolic dysfunction? 
the people who've done all the work, of course, and uh, just to mention, Shoshia Kao has been a partner for 15 years. We got divorced recently. She, uh, uh, a work partner, she moved to NYU. Uh, uh, it's a different kind of divorce, but it's still feels very painful. Feels like a painful divorce. <laughs> Um, and, you know, sometimes postdocs actually work hard. So this one just gave birth, Rosalind gave birth to a child, and there she's writing a paper at home. She did, she did her work, uh, she did the metastatics function with the hyperinsulinemia, etc. Okay, thank you. cancer, all the models we have in breast cancer, we have all the models, we have three, and when you're into two of them, that's lung cancer, that's lung metastases. <clears throat> we have looked at the obesity mouse, we looked at colon cancer, the mouse colon cancer where you put the cecum with primary tumor, respect to the, the liver. So it depends on the tumor. But we haven't yet finished our studies on uh, uh, when you start the colon cancer, and we find this later. So in your MKR mice, after they fully differentiate the diabetes, have you checked the cancer progression? Progression? <laughs> after they fully differentiate. Yeah, so let's say in eight weeks they're fully diabetic. They can go on. We've kept them going. The longest we've kept them going is for four or five months. We've never looked after that. So we haven't looked at other complications or any issues sort of focused on the cancer. So in the late stage, do they have the decreased insulin? Not at 16 weeks. Um, they strong pancreas, relatively strong. So we don't see that effect of type 2 diabetes later on. So um, are there data in uh, insulin-resistant non-obese individuals? Do they have increased cancer risk? The epidemiology? Yeah. Yes. That's where the epidemiologists look at type 2 in the absence of BMI, or they remove the BMI for it as a variable. They say, oh, okay, it's still a risk. And in your model, you're totally discounting, I mean, in your model, you're discounting it because it doesn't occur in Hamlet. But what about hyperglycemia? <coughs> so hyperglycemia, well, it's complicated, because if you remember, Warburg said there's increased glycolysis because the cancer cells need to metabolize glucose. And many of, of the, uh, many of the uh, cancers do, in fact, give you more lactate, etc. The work from Luke Cantley, <coughs> the last year or two, has strongly suggested that the growth factors like insulin IGF, and specifically insulin IGF, will divert the glycolytic pathway through the pentose mm -hmm. uh, phosphate pathway mm -hmm give you lipids and DNA synthesis, mm -hmm. which you need for proliferation. Mm -hmm. So it's still a Warburg phenomenon, and we use it for scanning, etc. but it's now a slightly different concept. Yeah. It's not regular metabolism of glucose, it's now directed to specific DNA lipid synthesis. So what it suggests is that the hyperinsulinemia can drive it. If you have more glucose, okay, but you don't have to have hyperglycemia. Uh, although, you know, not everybody buys that. Some people think that glucose is stimulating by itself. But, you know, how do you do glucose in the absence of insulin? Because you've always got some serum around in the you know, circulation. Or you've got IGF. 
So it's, it's going to be hard to distinguish that. So I'm not poo-pooing hypoglycemia. Yeah. I'm just suggesting don't need hypoglycemia. In a in vitro system, comparing the A and B isoforms of the receptor, what would you say about the characteristics of phosphorylation at equal concentrations of insulin? Yeah, so at equal concentrations of insulin, you see the same phosphorylation. But we don't know yet what the downstream, we started to look at that, what the downstream function is. And, and I say that because it's a, it's a good question. I not think this is really, but if you look at IGF-2 on uh, IRA, you compare it to insulin, and Charles Roberts has done this, and you do microarray, you can actually see differences. So it looks like IGF-2 binding to the, it's the two receptors show differences between insulin and IGF-1. In other words, even though we think they bind the same place, the IGFs or insulin binds in its place, even though IGF-2 hits the IRA, we think that downstream there are differences, but uh, we don't yet know what the differences are. And yeah, there's some was, subtle ideas that... Right, what I was thinking is, in theory, given the differential effects of the isoforms on metabolism versus what you refer to as um, cell division, whatever, yeah, yeah. In a therapeutic option, speaking like a grant, would be to take out in some way the isoform which is the culprit, at least in terms of the aggressiveness and yeah. the etiology of the tumor, leave the metabolic one in place. So you know, you know what happens, people ask you the question, you say, yeah, we're doing that experiment. The truth is we're doing that experiment. And in fact, the person who's doing it, uh, I can't show the experiment, but NG, we brought from the NIH, is a molecular biologist, has done all our genetic work. He's creating, we now have ES cells, he's created a flux <coughs> exon 11, uh, which is the splice variant, so we can actually then look at exactly what you say. Without the IRA, just have the that's, ISB. Right. That's um, an experiment that I was going to say. Right, so that's, you know, the last two years in process, but here we are. We also have the pre-locks for the IR, which we're now uh, phenotyping, but that's just going to tell you if the insulin receptor versus the IGF-1 receptor is right. important. Right. What he's creating for us is the isoform would hopefully be able to distinguish the two. Are there long-term data on weight loss achieved by diet as opposed to gastric bypass on the effect of um, mortality? Coming from you, I'm surprised you asked me is there long-term data on weight loss and diet? <laughs> <laughs> I know, you can't get that. And also, I think, you know, with a lot of these experiments, when you look at the, the mouse model, it's an extreme experiment. It's isolating something. It's, it's not the whole picture all in one, which is the usual story in patients or, or, or true models. Uh, and the same with the, the bypass surgery. You get much more sustained reductions mm -hmm. in many patients. You can tell us yeah. exactly how many. But a lot of patients do sustain weight loss. Um, and, and the weight loss is often much more severe than you can even hope for in tens of thousands of patients on diet. You, know, you always have the isolated person who's so neurotic he can do it, but the majority don't lose a lot of weight on diet. Right. Whereas the bypass surgery, as you can tell me, I think they lose much more weight. And here they showed that. There yeah. were much more severe weight reduction. I guess there's the weight control registry, but... Um, yeah. So I can answer the question. Okay.